I went and I told the doctor, I said, I'm trying to figure out how I can run into this pole and let one swipe and one hit do. And he looked at me and he said, stay right there. I'll be right back. Because he's asked me a couple of questions again. And I mean, I'm in his office. I'm in his, I'm in his office and I'm crying and I'm bawling. And I'm like, I want out. I want out. I want out. And he was like, stay right there. I'll be right back. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Good Health Cafe, the place to learn more about how to navigate the healthcare system and how to take care of your health in plain language. I'm your host, Nikita Boston Fisher, a health educator with a passion for meeting people where they are. Today's guest is Miss Rosemary Graham. Rosemary has lived with a variety of chronic illnesses over the past 37 years, the main one being lupus. However, she's been diagnosed with quite a few other things. Despite this, Rosemary has been able to keep her spirits up through her faith in God and her many activities and support groups. She has had some dips and you'll hear all about it today. So grab your warm drink and let's get to the episode. Hello, Rosemary. Welcome to the Good Health Cafe. Thank you so very much for coming. Could you please introduce yourself to the audience? Yes. My name is Rosemary Graham. I currently live in Atlanta, Georgia, and I have been diagnosed with several disorders. I have lupus. um, I have pulmonary fibrosis. I have pulmonary hypertension. I have caustic chondritis. I've got a host of other disorders. I was also diagnosed with polymyositis the year after I was diagnosed with lupus. I was diagnosed with lupus in 1984. And I was diagnosed with polymyositis, which is mini muscle arthritis in 1985. I was also diagnosed with interstitial lung disease, also in 1984 with the lupus. So it's lupus, interstitial lung disease, fibromyalgia, and then polymyositis, along with several disorders since then. I was diagnosed with pulmonary hypertension, which is another rare respiratory disorder in 2012. And then I was also diagnosed with endometrial cancer in 2017. I am still single, who no children. And I won't say looking for Mr. Goodbar <laughs> at this point, but and very involved in ministry. Uh, I am the disability ministry director for the South Atlantic Conference of Seventh-day Adventists here in Atlanta, Georgia. And I'm also the volunteer coordinator for the Southern Union Conference of Seventh-day Adventists Disability Committee. I am on the North American Division Disability Commission. I am also a board member of Disability Link, which is the Center for Independent Living uh, Resource Center here in Atlanta, Georgia, for people with disabilities. I'm also a former chair and member of the National Council of Churches in Christ Committee on Disabilities, and also former uh, board member of the Lupus Foundation, blah, blah, blah. I've been, do- I worked with Lupus, with the Lupus Georgia chapter for about 15, 16 years before I transitioned over into disability ministries, is my faith. You are a busy lady. You have listed several organizations, boards, volunteer things. That is pretty impressive. Can you tell me what led to your diagnosis of lupus? How did you find out? In 1984, we had a Black Seventh-day Adventist convocation in Atlanta, Georgia. And one of my school friends, I went to Oakwood University, Oakwood College is now Oakwood University. And one of my schoolmates came down and stayed with me for the convocation. Well, a week before that, I started getting sick. I coughed and coughed and coughed and coughed. And I didn't get a chance to go to much. And right after that ended on that Tuesday, I was in the doctor's office and they said, well, you have chronic bronchitis. So they gave me antibiotics and I took that. And then it kept going in and out with me having chronic bronchitis, chronic sinusitis. I had an acute sinobronchitis attack. And then during the summer, everything seemed fine. And then the fall of the year, the symptoms came back with the coughing, with the bronchitis. And it and we just, I just thought, you know, I, I do whatever. So being the, the natural herb person that I used to try to be, you know, I'm swallowing golden seal and all of this. And my girlfriend called me and she said, you don't sound good at all. 
I need to take you to see the doctor. Well, she was a nurse. And so I said, well, they're not going to be able to get me in. But when I called them for some reason, they were like, oh, yeah, we need to see you. So they were actually able to fit me in to see the doctor that day. And I went in. The room was crowded. And the lady looked at me and she was like, she's not looking quite right. And so they got me into a room and they did a chest x-ray. And I sat in the room for about maybe 15 or 20 minutes. And then two doctors came in the room and said, Ms. Graham, they said, you have double pneumonia. We have to take you to the hospital right now. And I'm thinking, but, and they were like, no, right now. So they said, is anybody with you? So my girlfriend was was with me. I told them who she was. She came back, you know, she told them she was a nurse and they told her everything. And I went to the hospital and I stayed in the hospital a week. And then right after that, I got out. Well, I thought everything was fine. I mean, I'm going to get better. I really didn't get better. (laughs) So I started going to see a specialist, a pulmonologist. They did some tests. And the night before Thanksgiving in 1984, you know, I should have been in a kitchen somewhere up to my elbows and onions. And mm-hmm. I was supposed to do the rolls, <laughs> the sweet potato souffle and the rice and bucket casserole. <laughs> I, already, I remember what I was supposed to do. But I was at the doctor's office and that's when he told me that I had been diagnosed with systemic lupus erythematosus and interstitial lung disease. Wow. And before that, before you had that first set of coughing symptoms, before the complication, mm-hmm. you were fine. You didn't feel anything at all. So it all came well, so suddenly, it sounds like. Actually, no. Okay. You know, if I do my childhood history, you know, when I was five, when I, when I was a teenager, and I'm not sure how this all correlates. Because when, seriously, when I was five years old, I fell down a flight of stairs and I had a head injury. They had to take me to the hospital and sew me up and because my mother found me in a pool of blood, blah, blah. And after that, I started having respiratory issues. I remember when I was nine years old, having a really bad cold and my mother do, uh, taking my temperature and it was 105. And she freaked out and she got my father. They filled the tub full of, I remember this because I was screaming. They filled it full of cold water and they stripped me down and told me how to get in. And I was like, I didn't want to get in it, but they made me get in it. They ducked me down several times before I could stand it no longer. And she started rubbing cold ice on me. When I got out, she slathered me down with a big vapor rub and wrapped me up in a blanket. And my father went running off to the drugstore. And every year or every other year, I would always have a bad cold. I, I'm originally from South Bend, Indiana. I grew up in South Bend, Indiana. And in 1984... I had gone to Oakwood and I finished. And I had gone to Oakwood and I had finished in 74. And so 76, I was like, okay. And so I wanted to get out of a college town. And since I had gone south to school, you know, that kind of opened up my eyes to, to the world a little bit. So right before I decided that I would move to Atlanta in 1978, I developed walking pneumonia. And so what well, they called it walking pneumonia back at that time. And they gave me antibiotics and I was better, got in the car and drove for $200 of my clothes and my car to Atlanta. You know, you know how we are when we're that young? We're going to venture out and see the world. (laughs) And I was, every year after that, I would always have a bad case with the flu, but it would always go away. This time it didn't go away. Mm. And once you got your diagnosis, what was it like? When it was odd because I was in, I was in a choir. I, I was in the Harmonizing Co-Ed Choir here in Atlanta, Georgia, with the Berean Seventh-day Adventist Church. And I remembered we had gone to do a concert. I don't remember if it was, it was Savannah or Macon, wherever we went. One of the members of the choir had lupus. And they were like, we got to cover her up because it was hot that day. And she's holding up an umbrella. And I'm looking at her like, what's lupus? And we had another church member that had a daughter that had lupus. So that was the only thing I knew about it. So when the doctor told me I had lupus, when I went back to see him for a follow-up, I told him, I said, well, I only have five years. And he said, where are you getting that from? I said, well, because 
such and such said this one had lupus and they died in five years. And this one said my cousin, you know, because listening to everybody, but they said, oh, my God, you're going to die. And so he looked at me and he said, well, Miss Graham, he said, here's the thing. If you think you have five years, then you have five years. So I want you to get that out your head right now. Now, it doesn't mean that I wasn't sick because I was still I was still sick during that time. And my my health would go, come and go. I do good for a couple of weeks and then I, I go back into to a flare. And so I was constantly, I don't want to say in and out, but, you know, up and down, you know, like a seesaw with my symptoms. Right before I got diagnosed with polymyositis, which is a mini muscle arthritis disease, once again, I was diagnosed the day before Thanksgiving. I have no idea what it is about Thanksgiving. And that's when I was extremely ill. Like I had a new primary care doctor, and he had sent me to another specialist who was supposed to put me in the hospital, but he did. So my doctor called me to see how to see how I was doing because I wasn't at the hospital. And he said, well, what are you doing at home? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you're supposed to be in the hospital. I said, nobody told me that. Yeah. He said, well, I told the doctor. And so he said, well, I need you to do this, do this. And I was like, nope, nope, nope. And that's when he told me, he said, Miss Graham, he said, you are very, very ill. He said, if you don't take the medication, if you don't get some assistance, and some, if I don't see you, he said, you could die. Wow. You could die. That was 37 years ago. And here you are. <laughs> Not five years. <laughs> no, quite a few years after. Exactly. Not five years. Not five years. Not five years. I like that. If you think you have five years, then you have five years. That was a great perspective he gave you. He said, get that out of your head. (laughs) What is it like to live with lupus? What, Like you mentioned a flare. What's a flare? A flare is when you have symptoms that won't go away and the pain is ongoing. With me, I have a lot of respiratory issues. I still have chronic bronchitis. I now also have, I also have what's called costochondritis, which is something when you're diagnosed with lupus, you know, lupus is an autoimmune disease where your antibodies, it's like when you have, have, when you cut yourself, this is how we used to do for our presentations. When you cut yourself, you have antibodies that kind of, you know, the T cells and the fighter cells and the B cells, and, you know, some are, some are, they're all over the place. Well, they get together like an army. And they go finding, trying to find the foreign object in the body. They'll, you know, they'll shoot it, kill it, what, what, however that works. And then everybody goes back home. That's when you have a foreign object in the body. This time with lupus and autoimmune disorders, what it means is that the antibodies get the signal that there's a foreign object in the body. And so they, they arm themselves together and it goes looking for the foreign object but it doesn't find it. So it's, it's almost, they start turning in on them, turning in on its, on its own self. So you got the body against itself, which is, means it's definition for autoimmune. So lupus, lupus can attack the blood. It can attack any of, the, any of the organs of the body or any of the systems of the body. But there's three different types. And I was classified in the system because of my lungs. Because it attacked my lungs. Okay. And along with, once you're diagnosed with lupus, if it's not discoid lupus, and even sometimes with discoid, you will have other complications. There are quite a few. Lupus nephritis is very prominent in African-Americans that have lupus. That's dealing with the kidneys. I have lupus friends that almost have a room reservation in the hospital. They're in there at least once a month because... The system of the body goes, something goes wrong. So when you're having a flare, you can start having fevers or, 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 or headaches that go away, or you start having a pain in, in the body that doesn't go away in your side and your back. That, and you'll start getting dizzy or you'll start having other issues where you really need to be seen. And there are times when people have ended up in the hospital, you know, have to go to the ER because of their symptoms. And once you say lupus, they will start they will start running tests and generally you can also be diagnosed with other disorders and it's not uncommon for people to have two or three or four or five 
or six other conditions. And everything comes and goes. Everything is, is cyclic in terms of its course, as well as with its initial diagnosis. It sounds like you're saying for you, the lupus affected your lungs. And is there anything else that you would say about what it's like to live with lupus on a daily basis? When I was diagnosed with polymyositis, that, that's mini muscle arthritis. That's also known now as lupus myositis because it's connected to lupus. And that's the muscle enzymes. Your muscle enzymes should be under 100. Well, mine were 5,000. Oh, wow. So, and that's what you call having a flare where, you know, you're thinking everything is fine, but, you know, you start, if you start stumbling or if you start doing some things, I remember with the myositis, I, it was hard for me to get up in and out of chairs. I couldn't reach for things over my head. I was stumbling. I was, I was falling. There were certain things that I was, I had no strength at all in my legs. And the doctor, I ended up at National Institutes of Health, actually, because they upped on the steroids. And the steroids worked for a while. And he took me, he brought me back down. But when he brought me back down, I reduced the dosage. That's when everything started flaring up again. And that's when the myositis came in. And so he tried to do the steroids, but then they started not working effectively. So he said, well, there's a study at National Institutes of Health. Would you like to get involved? And I said, well, yeah, I couldn't hurt. So in the summer of, I think it was 86, maybe, or 88. I think it might have been 88 that I actually went to, to um, the National Institute of Arthritis and Musculoskeletal. And I was there the whole summer in Bethesda, Maryland. Doing, they did what's called a white blood apheresis study, uh, double blind. So, and that was done for six or seven weeks. They would put a needle in both arms and one would draw the blood through the, draw, one needle would draw the, the blood out of the body through a machine and then put it back in the, in the other arm. That didn't work after, after they did that for seven weeks. They did a medical consult and they ended up putting me on some oncology medications and sent me back home to be followed up with my doctors. What was the experience like to be part of a clinical trial? It was very, very interesting. I will tell you this, my primary care doctor, he was not, the rheumatologist was the one that did the referral. But my primary care doctor, when he found out I was going to NIH, he set up an appointment with me and he said, okay, listen, he said, let me tell you this. He says, specialists are not trying to have good bedside manners. He said, well, he said, I shouldn't say that, but I'm telling you this. He said, don't think that they are neglecting you personally. When a specialist sees you, they're looking at, the, they're looking at your body going, okay, she's got this. The blood tests say this. The such and such say that. Okay, let's see where we can get this. So they're looking at you in terms of how they can fix the problem. So if, don't be disheartened. They don't want to hear about your cat died, you know, you and your brother had got it right, and you stressed out. That's the way he put it. Mm -hmm. So he said, your primary care physician, you do want to have a good bedside matter because everything that you do matters. But when you're dealing with the specialist, the specialist is concerned about the condition. And that is so true even today, 37 years later. I'm not sure what it is about the holiday, but it was during Christmas this time that I stumbled into the rheumatologist's office and he looks at me and he, he and I used to always clown around. He said, hush, hush. And so he looked at me with a puzzled look. He listened. He said, shh, okay. So he listened again and he came around the front. He went to the back, front, back, sides, kept going around. And he looked at me and he said, I hear a gallop sound in your heart. He said, it's either congestive heart failure or it's pulmonary hypertension. You have to get this checked out soon. And so I told him, I said, okay, all right. He said, no, no, no. So I went to get it checked out and I had to have a right heart cath. And I had the right heart cath and I was stage three. I was going into severe pulmonary hypertension. Praise God, the medication has worked. And so now my numbers are normal, within normal range. So the doctor is telling me, well, Miss Graham, you're fine. And I'm like, oh, hold up, hold up before you say fine. And so he's like, what? And I'm like, 
okay, you're looking at the numbers. The numbers are saying that you're not. I said, A, I'm still on oxygen. B, I'm still having, I'm still symptomatic because I still have some symptoms of pulmonary hypertension with the fluid retention, the headaches, and the other things that are going on with it. I said, and, and C, I said, I said don't, don't take this personally. But if I was fine, I'd be on the beach, my legs crossed, sipping on some sweet tea. So, you know, sometimes with the specialist, they will tell you, you know, certain things. It's always that condition differing between the doctors and the patients. When you say that, I guess you mean going back to what your primary care doctor said about looking at the disease as opposed to the full person? Yes. And, and one thing that I would like to say, too, to those that are listening or watching um, that are patients, please, you will have to educate yourself on your condition. You will need to know, doctors will ask you what the pain feels like. Does it feel like a knife? Does it feel like it's a pulled muscle? Is it pounding? Does it feel like it's being pulled? They will ask you certain questions. And if you have a history of your flares, for instance, you know, you could sleep for two nights, but the third night you couldn't sleep. Like I went to see the, the, when I went to go see the sleep study doctor, I told him, I said, for three days this week, I woke up in the middle of the night gasping for breath. Now I saw the pulmonologist. He said, what time was it? I gave him the time. What days did that happen? I gave him the days. So I had to have detailed information so he would have an idea the, the number of times that the, that the problem was happening. The, the, even the time of day could be in, indicated because I, I find out now that my oxygen level sometimes drops at night. But then I'm hearing that sometimes that's common on, among people that have pulmonary hypertension. So, so you educate document yourself. a lot. <laughs> Ed, document, educate yourself, know your conditions. I talked to a friend the other day and she said, well, I take seven pills of, of the steroids. I said, okay, well, what's the dosage? She said, I don't know. I said, you need to know the dosage of the medication. You might also want to find out about the side effects so that you'll know what you're looking at. Because some of, some of the conditions that I have now are coming from the side effects of medications and not necessarily the body itself. So what's helping one is offsetting another system. How do you document? Well, to document, you could easily do that. You can make up a chart or you could use, there are some apps that you can use. I have an, I have an iPhone and there is a health app on the phone. And so it tells you like when you, when you feel dizzy or when you, when you have stomach issues or when you have back pain or when your arm, you know, arm hurts, whether or not you have weight fluctuations. I have weight fluctuations all the time, but I have problems with fluid retention. So you can list certain things. So when you go to the doctor, you can have something that they can look at. Just recently, I got the Apple Watch. And I'm glad I did because now, even though it's not 100% accurate, I can still look at my heart rate. I can look at my blood oxygen levels. You know, I can do ECGs. And so I would tell patients, you can no longer, with the way the system is set up today, you have to be educated in your healthcare. You have to use self-care for your healthcare. You have to use self-care for your healthcare. You have to be intentional about your healthcare. Because if you're not, the system can do it, but there are lots of times and people have fallen through the cracks, even with their insurance, because of not being intentional and paying attention to their health care. That is true. That is true. So it, everything you do is digital for your documentation, like with apps and things, or do you have a notebook as well? I used to have a notebook, but you know, I've got digital now. Girl. You, for you, girl. <laughs> I'm tech savage. Shoot. You're telling me writing things down. The only thing I write down is scriptures. <laughs> And sign papers. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you manage? You have several illnesses, which means you likely have several physicians. How do you manage all of them together? I will tell you that I, I have 10 physicians, 10. And there are now I've been doing good these past two months 
because I've only had to see, well, this month I have three doctor appointments, but I had to space them out. Some months I have one doctor's appointment. Some doctors I have, sometimes I have two. And if I'm not really feeling good, it's not uncommon for me to see two doctors or three doctors in a week. I have a primary care physician. I have a rheumatologist. I have a pulmonologist who's also my pH specialist. I have an orthopedist because I'm uh, bone on bone on both my knees and they won't do surgery. I have an ophthalmologist because I have cataracts and I'm always showing problems with glaucoma. Now I have another condition called retinal venous occlusion, which means that I have a blood vessel in my eye that ruptured without me knowing it. And they found, he actually found blood in my eye. And he said, in essence, your eye had a stroke. I'm like, what? So I have to, <laughs> so I have to be monitored for that because they may have to go in it because it, there's possibility they will do everything they can. But, you know, there's always a slight possibility I could lose my vision. I also have an oncologist. I also have a ear, nose, and throat. I had ear tubes in my ears. I was teasing the ENT specialist when you put in the ear tube. I said, can I have my sucker, please? <laughs> yeah, they give kids suckers. Yeah. I also have a urogynecologist. I also have, I'm missing somebody. I have 10 doctors. I have 10 doctors. And depending on, and here's the thing, when you know your body, I can kind of figure out who I need to go see. Uh, with, with, with my knees or my, like I just went to see the rheumatologist and I actually saw a new one, but I needed to go see her because I was having uh, pain in my legs and my thighs and my back and my, and, and, and my shoulders. It's fibromyalgia. And so and she did something new. She actually gave me injections. It's like, okay. If I have pain in my eyes, I know automatically. Go see an ophthalmologist. Pain in the knees? Oh, yes, ma'am. <laughs> I got to get some steroid injections. Do they talk to each other? Sometimes. They are now because I'm starting to transfer to doctors that are within a system. My pulmonologist was like, you have doctors all over the place. I have five or six doctors in one area, but none of them are part of that system in that area, which is Northside. So only the, the pulmonologist and the oncologist. But I transferred now so that I have my cardiologist. Oh, I forgot that we have a cardiologist. My cardiologist, my, my primary care, and my rheumatologist are on one system. And my cardiologist was very pleased because he could go in and see the notes of the primary doctor had left and the rheumatologist had left and what their blood works were and what they were med- medications and look at that. And it's, it's very important. It's hard to... Nowadays, go on a system, and I understand that they are trying to have a system set up so that if wherever you are, if your name comes up, your condition and stuff can come up. What's the, the medical alert system is something good to use. The medical alert systems are always good to use and good to have. And I have another girlfriend. I thought I had seen something somewhere where there's a little chip that you can have on your key ring. It's kind of like a flash drive that can have all of your information and your they're they're working towards that with your medical records and stuff. But I usually I do use paper, but I type it. I do have a little type paper and stuff and stuff for for if the if if I can't and if they can't find anything, if they dig it in my purse, they'll find you know information in terms of what I have and who my doctors are and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I do have that typed. So nice. We're more advanced than I am. That's for sure. (laughs) I like good old fashioned pen and paper. How did you mentally handle all your various diagnoses? Here's the thing. When I was 15 years old, I was bullied in school. I was rejected by some friends at church. You know, we got, you got a few of the little church things going on, you know, the church hurt thing going on. I was overweight. I had low self-esteem. And there was there was a little dysfunction in the home going on. And I thought the world would be better without me. So I went downstairs and grabbed three bottles and put some pills in my hand. Went back upstairs and swallowed all of them and said, bye. God said no. So when 
I went to school. I would have issues with sadness and depression, but it would come and go. And, you know, we just figured that, you know, growing pains, growth pains, you know, from being an adult and trying to figure out your life and things. But when I was diagnosed with lupus, I was very involved with the church. I was a church musician. I was a church soloist. Every time they needed somebody to sing, I'd sing. I was heavily involved with the church. And when I was diagnosed with, with lupus, people started backing away from me. I was asking me all kind of crazy questions and about my faith walk and what was I eating and all this other stuff. And I remember getting depressed and the suicide ideation came back. I was talking, I finally, I realized at one point, because on top of all of that, when I was diagnosed with the polymyositis and the lupus, my job decided they were going to have cutbacks. So they, they, everybody that was on leave, they let go. And I was a part of that group. I lost my job. I lost my apartment. I lost my car. I lost a lot of things. And so I was in a deep, dark place. And people were, then this is a whole nother discussion. People from the Christian world and not just any, you know, it's, and when I say Christian world, Christendom in terms of chronic illness and disabilities versus your faith walk. As if what, what you have is dependent on what you've done or what are you not having no faith? And when people were telling me that, I started even questioning my faith because I, again, I was, I was very, I was very involved in the church. And I went and I told the doctor, I said, I'm trying to figure out how I can run into this pole and let one swipe and one hit do. And he looked at me and he said, stay right there. I'll be right back. Cause he's asked me a couple of questions again. And I mean, I'm in his office. I'm in his, I'm in his office and I'm crying and I'm bawling. And I'm like, I want out. I want out. I want out. And he was like, stay right there. I'll be right back. He gave me a number on a piece of paper. And he said in the address, he said, I need for you to get in your car and I need you to drive right here, right now. He said, do not go home. And I told him, and I'm crying. I said, but I want you to no, 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 no. Do not go home. What I want you to do is when you get to her office, they will call me and let me know that you arrived there safely. If they do not call me, it's only it's going to take you so many minutes. I'm going to give you an extra five or 10 minutes because of traffic. If they do not call me, I will send somebody to your house. Oh, wow. I'm like, I don't re- at that point, I didn't realize it was that serious. I'm, okay. He sent me to see a psychologist and she diagnosed me with clinical depression. And so, but she did not diagnose me to get medication because a psychologist will just, just talk with you but the psychiatrist would diagnose the medication. Another two weeks later, I called the doctor back and I said, you know, the sessions aren't working. And he said, okay, I need you to see a psychiatrist. And that's when they diagnosed me with Prozac. So I took, I took the, the least amount. I was always leery about certain medications anyway. So they give me medication. I cut the pill in, I cut the pill in, in half. I didn't want all the side effects. And so I took the pill in half. I did okay for a while, but then when you have, when you lose so much and you don't have any positive people to feed into you, you know, you can, and there were some people that were telling me, hold on to your faith. You know, there were a few people that were trying to encourage me, but because nobody had ever experienced this before and I had, and people that I know that were telling me that they so-and-so had lupus and this one had lupus, had died or was in a hospital on ventilators. I was in a really, really deep, dark place. So I went to see my rheumatologist. My doctor started sending me around, round robin, go see this doctor, go see this doctor. So I went to the rheumatologist and he said, you need to go find a support group, something that will help you know how to live out your journey. And I said, yeah, 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 yeah. He said, no, 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 go find, find a support group. Well, the first one I, one I went to was the Arthritis Foundation. Well, I, I, I got Aunt May and Bertha and Sally Brigade. So that didn't work. That that did not that did not work. I went home and I was right on the edge. Again, I kept saying, no, this ain't gonna work. And I knew I was in trouble. And I said, Lord help me. And I started looking in the phone book and I found Lupus Foundation. And I was like, oh, I knew they had a foundation. None of my doctors had ever told me foundation. And back then, you know, we didn't have 
the internet systems that we have today. So I found the foundation. I called. They were having a support group that Sunday. This was on a Friday. No, they have it on a Saturday. This is on a either Friday or Thursday. I found it. I called them. They told me when the support group meeting was. I did not go to church that day. I went to the support group meeting. By the time I got there, I was a mess. I was literally in tears. This is how dark and how broken I was. And I got there and I heard them talking about steroids and the prednisone and the mood changes and the mood effects. And I was like, I haven't heard this before. Wait a minute. And the facilitator looked at me and she could tell. She could tell I was on the edge. She gave me her card. She said, I'm a psychotherapist. She said, if you need to, if you need to speak to me, call me. I can talk to you. The next day, I called her and I said, I can't do this. I told her, I said, I know I can't kill myself, I, 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 but I got to have somebody to talk to. She said, come to my office tomorrow. And she said, I'll be, I'll be here waiting. I am canceling an appointment so I can see you. When I got to her office and she had me to tell everything that was going wrong with me. And by the time she finished with me, I found out that it was a medication, the prednisone, that causes mood swings. I found out that it was the disease process itself. And she actually prayed with me when we finished our session. That was the start to my healing. I found somebody that had been through the journey, knew what I was going through, was also a Christian, and knew what I needed to do to help. I, I still have clinical depression. I was doing fine. I wasn't taking medication because, you know, you know, with the songs and the scriptures and the prayers and the dudes, I'm trying to, you know, lift myself up out of that. But I started having issues with <clears throat> menopause had come and gone, but I started spotting again. And I usually don't go for an annual physical because I see so many doctors. But this year, as they say, something told me, just go get a physical. So I went and got a physical the doctor was almost out of the office. I said, oh, yeah, I forgot to tell you that I've been spotting and bleeding. And she literally stopped in the door. She turned around and she looked at me and she said, what did you say? I said, hey, she said, oh, my God. Oh, Jesus, you have cancer. And I said, oh, no, no, no. Yeah, that's what it is. And so she sent me to, have, to see a gynecologist who then sent me to have, did a pap smear who then sent me to the hospital. And then she had me do, what's the, the endoscopy or something? Where they go, that hurt. And the week of Thanksgiving, I told you something about the holiday. Again? Again. I had gone to Florida. We had a meeting in Florida. And I usually have two girlfriends that ride with me, but I ended up driving eight hours to Tampa by myself. And I knew something was up. I knew, I couldn't figure it out. I said, I knew something was up. And I got back, turned the car back in, and I had two doctor appointments that day. And I was going to cancel out because I saw the pulmonologist in the morning and I saw the gynecologist in the evening. I generally don't do that. But I said, you know what? Let me just go ahead and get them out the way. One's in the morning, one's in the evening. I'm done for the, for the rest of the month and the holidays. Well, I saw the pulmonologist first. Okay, Miss Graham, we can... You know, you're doing, you're stable, you know, stay on your oxygen, stay on your medications, blah, blah, blah. Gynecologist, as I got there, my appointment was at 4, 4.10. I got there a quarter of four. I checked in, there was only three people in the waiting room. So by the time they called me back, there was only two people in the waiting room. And I sat there and I waited. They got me back to the room about 4 or 5. And I waited. It's so about 4.15, 4.20. I'm thinking... Taking a long time. I said, well, there were two other people that were behind me. I said, well, maybe they, you know, she she's seen another client. 4.30 came. She hadn't come. I started getting, and by 4.40, 4.45, when she walked in, that's when she said, "Miss Graham, the test results are back and you have cancer. And that set me into another side of depression. But it wasn't as bad as before. Because I remember going to bed that night saying, God, you have brought me 30-some years with lupus. So I know you're not going to fail me now. I had laparoscopic uh, robotic surgery in January of 2018. 
I did end up in ICU afterwards. My oxygen dropped. I was in the ICU for almost two days. And the third day, I was doing well. They sent me home. About a week or two later, I started noticing my mood starting to get back on that dark side. And I said, something's not right. And I, I don't know how to explain this, but I could really, I could, I could almost feel the depression. So when I say that I had a hysterectomy, they took the ovaries, the cervix, the uterus, the lymph node, they took everything. And my, I went to see my pulmonologist and he wanted me to do pulmonary rehab because I, you know, I was having problems walking and stuff. And I called a respiratory therapist and she said, well, first of all, you need to heal from the surgery. That's going to be six months. She said, but you have no hormone. And she said, you know, your hormones are in your ovaries. And she said, you have no hormones and I cannot take hormone replacement therapies. And so she said, I don't know what you're going to do. She said, but you need to go be seen by the doctors. So I went to go see the doctors. I now have to take antidepressant. And I also have a therapist that I see. And yes, you can have Jesus and a therapist. Thank you very much. Yes, you can. It works very well. Did you say Christ and the couch? That's right. I'm, like- I'm going to call <laughs> the couch series. Yes, ma'am, I am. <laughs> I love that. I've never heard that before. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Mental health, when you have a chronic illness, is just as important as your physical health. Because the statistics say that 60% of people that have a chronic illness will also have mental health issues. And the mental health issues will be generally depression, anxiety. We went to a restaurant on Tuesday. And I talked to a young lady there who was our waitress. Her mother had been diagnosed with lupus. She had a mental breakdown and she was on the psych ward in the hospital. I've known other people that have had autoimmune disorders, that have had depression and have had mental breakdowns. And there is such a thing, I think it is with the CNS lupus. I remember when I was working with the Lupus Foundation and one day I was in bed and I saw on the news where a lady had uh, lupus nephritis and they had put her on a full dose of steroids. And she was having a lot of issues going on. And she ran out in front of the traffic on 285 and was killed. Oh, wow. And I ended up talking to the reporters on the phone from them about lupus and what it is and how people, why somebody would do that. So let me say this to those of you that have a chronic illness and you're in a dark place. Don't suffer alone. Go get help. Tell your doctor you're having problems with depression. The doctor, and I will tell you, the best person to go see would probably be a psychiatrist. Because the psychiatrists are the ones that prescribe the medications. Find a psychologist. If you don't have the funds, you can contact the National Alliance of Mental Illness, NAMI, and they will help you find therapists. Mental health now is very important. And most of the insurances, if you you do have insurance, are waiving the co-pays. So mental health is now considered the second pandemic. I remember Fauci saying that. And it's so true because COVID has brought out the worst in everything and everybody. And the mental health is especially troubling for our children, for our teens, and for our seniors. Those are the groups that are suffering the most. So. You just preached a sermon. Getting ready for that. <laughs> All that is true. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. I will, I will tell you that I cannot tell you how or why I have this spirit. I know that it is God-given. Do I have problems with depression still? Yes. Do I have problems with sadness? Yes. Are there times when I feel lonely and isolated? Yes. But I have the tools that I need to help get me out of that that pit. And I have a girlfriend who will always tell me, if you're going to go in that pit, take a ladder with you so you can climb yourself back out. Mm-hmm. And I would say the same thing. Having a chronic illness in a, in a pandemic is double impact in terms of being able to see the doctors, not see the doctors, 
getting the medications you need, dealing with whatever dysfunction or not dysfunction you're having at home. There's a lot of things that go into this before you had COVID and now you've got, now we're in a pandemic. So it could be double, tripled in terms of your emotional wellness. But there's always help. There's always hope. Please go see somebody. Where did you find the tools that you have now? I went on several things. Number one, I went to the Lupus Foundation. Number two, I, I joined now, oh, social media, Facebook. I know you got some of you younger people may not do Facebook anymore. But let me tell you this. Y- yes, get your hips on Facebook because every everything that's wrong with me, I belong to a group on Facebook. There's a pulmonary hypertension support group. There's a lupus support group. There's a fibromyalgia support group. There's a pulmonary fibrosis support group. There's an irritable bowel support. Every condition that I have, I'm on Facebook. And here's the reason why I say you got to get, you've got to have a community around you because your peers will be able to identify your, can understand your pain. When your family doesn't, when your friends don't, your peers will understand when you say you're tired all the time. And, and 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 you don't feel good and you got a headache today. Well, you said that yesterday. You said that last week. When are you going to start feeling better? That's what your family will say. That's what your friends say. Girl, please, I understand. Let me tell you what I did. That's what you want to hear. Yeah. You don't want to hear. This past weekend, my cousin had invited me to come over to her house. She was going to pick me up. I was going to spend the night. We was going to hang out for the fourth. I woke up Sunday morning. I thought I was going to have to call urgent care because I thought I might. I had a headache. I had a cough. I had sinus drainage. My chest was hurting and I was dizzy. And I'm thinking, man, right here, I didn't call. So when I didn't hear from you that something was wrong, I said, yeah, but I just, I didn't want to call you and tell you, you know, something was wrong. So she was like, well, yeah, I figured that. So I, I still have, I still have my days. I still have my days. But that's when I plug into that's it's called intentional living, you know, so I'm intentional about my self-care. So like this morning, I got up and I played CC Wine is goodness of God. Just got a new um, CD out, especially out for the COVID. Oh, man, that whole thing. But the goodness of God had me singing a long time and as much as I possibly could. And 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 just trying to encourage my spirit that it's going to be OK. Trust me when I tell you, I'm 37 years living with chronic illness. Am I getting weary? Yeah. Tired of taking medication? Yeah. Tired of always going to see the doctors. The only doctors are my only friends. But I'm still here. And in spite of all this, I can still encourage somebody. And that's what it's all about. That's right. What else have you learned about navigating a chronic illness? I've learned how to navigate the system. I've learned how to accurately tell the doctors what's going on with me. I've learned that there is another day. I've learned that there is there is life after lupus. I've learned that everything will not always go right, but sometimes you just need to be still when it doesn't go right. Because if I stress myself out, the only thing I've done at the end of the day is stress myself out and I end up with pain. And one thing that I do know is the mind affects the body and the body affects the mind. When the body is sick, the mind is sick. When the mind is sick, the body is sick. And you have this vicious cycle going round and round and round. I did a presentation last night and I just found out that there are certain foods that can affect your mind and can affect your moods. And that there is the second brain the gut, gut-brain connection. There are 100 million nerve cells in the, in, in, in the gut that, that, that help travel information from the, from the gut to the esophagus and back. And the vagus nerve is the largest nerve that carries information up to the brain and back. And it affects your mood. It affects your thinking. It affects everything. And so I have to watch, intensely watch what I eat, junk food, junk, five days. And I was surprised at this. Five days of drinking nothing but Pepsis and Cokes and drink and eating a whole lot of sweets. 
will depress your mood and will also cause you to have inflammation. And that inflammation will not only affect your body, it now affects your brain. And it's called neuroinflammation. I was like, whoa. So you have to be intentional. Yes. Yes, you do. I like, I like, I'm enjoying your perspectives. Do you have any examples of times when you've had to advocate for yourself? Oh, yeah. Um, I have fibromyalgia. And the doctor wanted to put me on a medication. Now, I also back then had mitral valve prolapse. So I would always have heart palpitations and I would feel my heart skipping and doing different things. So the doctor wanted to put me on this medication for my fibromyalgia because I was always having a lot of fiber, fibrous pain. But the medication causes, the, I think the second or the third side effect said increased heart rate palpitations. So I looked at it and I said, he gave me the prescription. I went home and, I, and as they say, Something told me to look up this medication and see, because I had heard people talking about this medication and not in a good way. And so when I went to look at some of the side effects, I was like, well, no wonder they were talking about don't take this. So I called my rheumatologist. I set up an appointment to go back. We're going to have to switch. And he's like, well, no, I need you to take this because it's really helped. I know it's new. It's not on the market, but it's really, really good. And it helps our patients and blah, blah, blah. I said, you do know I have mitral valve prolapse and I already have heart palpitations. So now if I take this medication, it's going to increase my heart palpitations. He said, yeah, yeah, but it's really working for this. I said, yes, it will work for that. I said, but I'm going to end up in the ER because I'm having heart palpitations so bad that it may throw me into having some type of heart arrhythmias. I said, I use the word arrhythmias. And so I said, so let's look at this. Does it say 10 dozen other others? So it works here, but it offsets this here. So he says, well, this is a pro-choice. Office. I said, okay, so this is what we're going to do. We're going to do the Daniel and the three Hebrew boys test for the next I said, read the Bible. Just get Daniel, read the Bible, Daniel. <laughs> this is the first two chapters. Come on. What else you got? And let's see how that works. So he gave me another prescription. Grudgingly, he gave me another prescription. And he was like, you and your... He didn't say it. But then he was like, okay, 30... He said, 30 days. I said, that's what we get. That's what you get. And that medication worked. Nice. I like that story. Is there anything you know now that you wish you knew when you started your journey? I would tell myself, don't be afraid. I would tell myself, don't listen to the naysayers. I would tell myself, don't be upset because you lost friends. You really didn't lose friends. You lost people that know, that know of you because your friends will stick by you through the end. And I had a lot of people back off from me. My girlfriend, one of my friends, that one of my friends that stuck by me then and is still a good friend of mine today, who she's also a nurse, so. But she said, you scared us. You were the one among us. You were the fun one among us. You were the one that we would always have a good time. And when you got sick, we didn't know whether or not it would happen to us. So we backed away. And she told me, she said, if you lose a car, you can get another one. If you lose your job, you can get another one. If you lose a house, you can get another one. And she said, God forbid, if you lose a child, she said, sometimes you can get another child. She said, but when you lose your health, she said, that's it. Sometimes that's it. And so she said, you have to be intentional and you have to understand that some of the rejection is not intended at you personally, but it's out of fear. For me, it still felt like rejection. But what is the odd, what the odd thing is, though, this happened to me 37 years ago. And so now some of the people that have backed off from me now have arthritis and now having this and now having some of the issues that I have and the fibromyalgia. Like, girl, how could you do it? 
And now they're looking at me telling me that I inspired them because even though I didn't realize it, and one of the things that I posted not too long ago is your greatest witness is how people see you, the way you handle your pain. And so I would tell myself, handle your pain well, because even, even when you feel that you are being rejected, you're not being rejected, you're being watched. Because when people start handling their pain, they're going to come to you. And it's happened. That those folks, the same people that at one time that I thought had rejected me are now coming back. Girl, how'd you do it? What'd you take? I think I would also tell myself what I tell myself now. Don't give up. And let me tell you why I have as much activity in my life and staying busy as I, as I was. I remember somebody telling me life is not over because you have lupus. The psychotherapist that I had when I went to see her with at lupus encouraged me to become a facilitator for, for a class that we had called SLASH, which was Systemic Lupus Erythema Toma Self-Help Course that we taught. I took the facilitator's training for that. I started getting involved with the foundation, going to the support groups, ended up on the board of directors, ended up volunteering. And first I was just doing going to the health retreats and passing out information. Well, then I, that started getting me involved in going to do presentations. I've done presentations. I did presentations on lupus in schools and churches and businesses. And the one that was the most challenging for me was an elementary school. Because hmm. how, how, do you, how do you explain lupus to a six-year-old? I had to get creative on that one. And I don't remember what I did. But I started getting involved. I I had my I had maybe two years, maybe two, maybe two and a half years where I was in the pit. I was in the pit, for a but I started to slowly come out. And the more I got involved, the more I realized that there was a bigger world out there than just my one little circle that I was in. And I grudgingly say sometimes today that my greatest help comes from those that I deal with what I've dealt with. I don't want to put a cast on the church, but I would say that the church needs to be a little bit more understanding of people that have situations and issues. All of us are broken. All of us are tore up from the floor. And all of us have issues. All of us, hey, I'm just keeping it real. And we have to be, not only do we have to be kind, but we have to be compassionate to one another and say, what can I do to help? And not be judgmental. Well, you know, the reason why she's sick, uh, if she had just, you, don't do that. And that's why we have a lot of people now that are and specifically among our millennials and stuff, church hurt, uh, that are leaving the church. I, actually, I remember going to the pastor after somebody asked me if I was faithful in paying my tithe. And I remember going to the pastor and telling him, okay, take my name off the roll. I'm done with y'all. Because they were so judgmental. Now, and, and it was interesting, but I was so active back then and so active in the church. Now, this isn't cast on the church per se. I guess I should say the people, because some of the people were standing with me. We're going to get you. We're going to get through this. We're going to get through this. But then there were always the naysayers. And it's interesting how the mind plays tricks on you. You don't remember what the good person says remember what somebody says that's 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 bad or that's negative mm -hmm. it says if you were just okay what the reason why you're not because you're not eating right and you'd go home and you start to question yourself so i would tell myself yeah they don't have a that's clue right. that's right it's funny people will tell us 10 great things and one person says something bad and all we remember is that one bad thing and forget the 10 good things we, 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 all, we, we forget the 10 good things. We do. Do you have any popular myths and misconceptions that you'd like to dispel around living with a chronic illness? Things you hear that make you think, gosh, where are you getting this? I would probably say that some of the myths are mostly probably religious in nature. Hmm. But I would also say, too, you won't get better. Um, that's a trick that our own mind plays. 
because when people were telling me about lupus, and back then it was considered a rare disorder because nobody knew about lupus. It was an autoimmune, but it was considered a rare disorder. My mind started saying stuff like, you won't get better or you won't improve or there's nothing else for you to do. I would tell myself, I read, I read the scripture to give you an idea in terms of what to do after that, because you're going to lose some things when you are diagnosed with a chronic illness. But it's almost like with the lemonade, you know, is the glass half empty or is it half full? Back then, I would have told you it was half empty. Today, I'd say, oh, there's something in it. Pass me some lemons. Oh, we can still make a little bit. Of I couldn't tell you that back then because I was, I was looking at it from the negative side. And sometimes when you're diagnosed with these odd disorders, you think the negative, even people try to, to say you're going to make it, you'll be okay, you'll be okay. Somehow I'm right back to that because it gets back to our thought life. I did some research and we generally think, I've seen new and old, but generally around 60,000 thoughts per day. 80% of those are negative and 95% of those are repetitive. So it's almost, as one author says, you're rehearsing the difficulty. So in terms of your negative thinking, trying to break yourself out of that negative thinking. It's almost, and there's a scripture in the Bible where the Paul says, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God, through the pulling down of strongholds. And sometimes our minds can be strongholds, casting down imaginations and everything that exalted itself against the knowledge of Christ and bringing into captivity every thought. That's a challenge. Because even today, something about even today, you know, that, that negative thought and trying to think of bringing every thought, Jesus, that's a task. And specifically when you have a chronic illness and you're not feeling good because the pain makes you feel sadder and, and making you feel sad. There's that body, that mind-body connection, mind-body-spirit connection. And what affects one affects the other. And so it's sometimes it's hard to break out of that. It's hard to break out of that. And I just I just like to be, and I find that if you'd asked me what I would have been doing 30 years ago, this would have not been, I thought life was over. I did. I remembered when I was at National Institutes of Health, standing in the window, looking out the window, going, God, I don't understand what's going on. None. Why am I here? Why do I have this? What's going on with me? I don't understand. And then I said, well, just show me what to do. Don't have me just sitting and languishing and doing nothing. Help me figure out what I can do. And I got back and they called and said, well, you know, come to the support group meetings. And that's when I started slowly getting involved. And I will tell you that everything that I have done, God has brought it to me. Would I prefer to be doing something else? Yes, I've always wanted the house with the picket fence, with the two kids, the husband, the dog. I didn't get any of that. I did, but I would almost, I'm not there quite yet, but I, I would almost say I got something better. And that is my purpose, my true purpose. Thank you so much for sharing your story with me at the Good Health Cafe, Rosemary. Is there anything else you'd like to add as we close? Other thoughts you think might help a listener? It may get better. It may not get better. It may seem like the pain will not go away, but eventually the pain will go away. If you, if you try to think more positive and be more positive, sometimes that will offset how bad you feel. I know you're saying, no, that don't work. Sometimes it does in terms of just how you feel and how you think. Because your thinking can also affect how you feel. It's not, and if it doesn't go away, there's um, an author that says that sometimes God doesn't heal us immediately right away, but he gives us something greater. He gives us his grace and his mercy to sustain us. I'm not cured, but I'm healed. There's a difference between being healed, what we say in terms of a person being healed. Usually we say when a person's being healed, 
that means that they no longer have the issues, the pain, the problems. Their health goes back to normal, and they can go back to their no, their normal rat race that they were doing before. And a lot of times, God is redirecting us to something even better. You don't see it now. Don't fret. Hold on. You don't see it now. Hold on. Because God will show you what your purpose is. And even if you don't feel that he's going to show you, I can tell you this. I have lived with lupus, an interstitial lung disease. I've been on oxygen since 2009 and a cancer survivor for 37 years. God's grace and mercy has sustained me in all of those years. And if he sustained me, he can sustain you. Thank you, Pastor Graham. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming to the Good Health Cafe. What did you think? Rosemary has had quite the health journey, but I really appreciated how she was able to keep everything in perspective and allow herself to stay motivated and move forward. If you enjoyed this episode of the podcast or any other episode of the Good Health Cafe, Please do share it with a friend so that they can gain and benefit from the knowledge as well. Share the wealth. Until next time, see you in the cafe later. Bye.